Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Our new series in Luke called Glorious Disruption, being taught by our senior pastor, Kevin Dibley, is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Isn't it a glorious day today? It's just a beautiful day to be outside and come into worship. I love these days. I love the, the smell of the leaves and the colors that are um, exploding everywhere. I say it every year. I go, man, is this the most beautiful year of colors? And I think I said it last year, and I think I said it, I think we just forget how, how glorious it is. And last night, um, I, came, I flew in from Green Bay, and we went out for dinner, and then on our way back in, we came into our neighborhood, and one of our neighbors had one of those fires going late at night, and you could smell the smoke, and that just sounds, he- smells heavenly to me. I, I just love the autumn, even though I hear people say, but it is a harbinger of bad news. <laughs> things are about to change, but it is glorious. And, you know, um, one of the things I used to do in the autumn is I used to keep bees, and I had a couple of beehives, and uh, I would go to my beehives, because this time of year, they are just hoarding. They're bringing in nectar, and they're bringing in pollen, and they're packing uh, up there. And I had two hives, and uh, you would put supers on. Those were the boxes with the frames in them, and they would get a little higher, and you'd have to make sure they had enough uh, honey in them to last the winter so they could survive the cold winter. And I, I would stand about 20 yards, actually this was in Canada, so it was 20 meters, but I would stand 20 meters in front of the beehives just like this. I would face with, my back would be to the hive, and I would just face this way. So each hive has about 30,000 bees in them. So when you're standing there, it is just like bullets whizzing by, just and I would just stand there and take it in going, this is so cool. <laughs> Uh, Then I found out I was allergic to bees, and it was not cool anymore. (laughs) But uh, that's what I would do. I would go out there, and, you know, if you notice anything, I do that here, and you're the bees. Before the first service and the second service, I try to go outside and watch the bees come in. You know, as they're coming in to get honey, actually, to get refreshed, to taste of the Word of God. I watch the bees come in. I just need to tell you, you're nothing like those bees. Because when those bees are coming in, they were whipping by, but you're kind of like the plane that is cutting out on the way into the runway. You know, and you're hoping to make the runway <laughs> as you're coming. That's what it feels like a lot of times, isn't it? When you're coming into worship, you feel like you've been out there living for the Lord, trying to live a Christian life, trying to do it, and you're running out of steam. It's difficult, and it's challenging, and it's costly. And as Gabe read the scripture that we're studying this morning, it's really explicit that the Christian life is not an easy life. It's a call to take up our cross and follow Christ in this world. It is a call to brokenness and suffering and the low road in order to go high for Christ. 
And we need to hear this call in Luke's gospel because I think a lot of times we get under the delusion that if I'm living my Christian life, it should go like this. That the church should be superpowered in a sense that, you know, we're making broad influence and people around us are impressed with how we're living. Most of the time we're staggering in, thinking, why am I so broken? Why am I so tired? Why is it so hard? You know, um, I, uh, when the family was here in the summertime, we got them hooked on the Alone series. And if you've watched the Alone series, it's like, 10 crazy outdoors people who go in the middle of nowhere and try to survive the longest. If they can survive the longest, they win something like $500,000. So they get 10 things that they can take with them and they go out into the middle of nowhere and they try to survive. But it's always funny because there's this kind of initial zeal, like everybody's going to win. And like, you know, three weeks into it, they're all crying and wanting to go home. It's a, it's a great psychological experiment. But uh, I remember one character in, in, uh, in particular, this one guy, he was talking with his family. I think he was from North Carolina or someplace like that. And he's talking to his family and he's saying, when I meet Mr. Bear, he's talking to his kids. I'm going to tell him blah, 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 you know. And he's boasting away there. And then they show him the very first day the plane lands and drops him off. I, I don't think he even sees a bear. I think he sees bear droppings. He sees bear droppings, and he starts to spin psychologically, and the next thing you know, he's hitting the button. He didn't even get to sleep overnight one night. <laughs> he was gone. And, and I think about that because many times in our Christian discipleship, we begin with this kind of glorious sense of, I'm going to live this life, and I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to be strong, and then the story just goes off the rails, right? Just doesn't go the way we expect it to go and we start you know the plane coming in sputtering and I want you to look at this text of scripture because Jesus has been teaching on humility and this text is not separate from that he is going to continue to teach us we have to die in order to live that death comes before resurrection. But if you look at verse um, 25 that Gabe read, it says, now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds accompanied him. So Jesus had just been at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and he basically gave everybody a lecture. Just didn't leave anybody out. Went after the ruler of the Pharisees, went after the man who said, yeah, at the back. Great is, uh, blessed is he who eats bread in the kingdom of God. He just took each person apart and taught them that the low road, humility, was the way to go. And I think the people heard Jesus um, calling out the rulers and the people of influence and the hypocrites, and they went, this is our man. This is the guy that's going to do it. He's going to turn Jerusalem upside down. They began to get this great messianic ex, uh, expectation. And as it says, the multitudes begin to follow Jesus. Jesus stops and turns around and says, I don't think this is going to be what you think this is going to be. He's journeying to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. Uh, one commentator, David Garland, says, a big difference exists from simp between simply going along with Jesus, the Greek word sumperuomai, which is used here, 
There's a big difference between simply going along with Jesus and following him as a disciple. Akalutheo, following him as a disciple. Jesus is saying, do you really want to follow me? You need to stop and realize where I'm going. This is the time to get off the bus if you don't want to go to the cross where I'm going. Listen to Fred Craddock as he, or Craddock as he writes about this. He says, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. But what is the nature of his journey? Is it a funeral procession? Apparently, only Jesus has seriously faced the issue of death. The 12 certainly have not yet grasped it. Is it a march? Very likely, some think so, investing a great deal of emotion in imagining the projected clash. Galilee versus Jerusalem. Peasants against power. Laity versus clergy. Jews versus Romans. Jesus versus the establishment. Is it a parade? Obviously, the crowd thinks so, oblivious to any conflict, any price to pay, any cross to bear. The crowd swell. Everyone loves a parade. What does Jesus have to say to these hasty volunteers? In some, his word is this. Think about what you're doing and decide if you're willing to stay with me all the way. It's a moment of reckoning. Think about what you're doing. Think about where you're going. Decide if you want to go. And he says some really strong things. He says if you don't hate your family, it's not how to recruit, right? If you don't hate your family, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, your daughter, you, you cannot be my disciple. You, you must take up your cross and follow me or you cannot be my disciple. He gives these exclusive terms to say to them. Now that sounds harsh to us, but you and I have to realize that he's talking to them about the way the kingdom of God is built. And it is not built with mega power. It's built with humility. It's not built with super ego. It's built with humbling yourself to the point of death on a cross. Crucifixion. That's the way. It's that path. Listen uh, to N.T. Wright as he describes what we should be thinking here. He says, think of a leader of a great expedition. He's forging his way through a high and dangerous mountain pass to bring urgent medical aid to villagers cut off from the rest of the world. And he says to the people with him, if you want to come any further, the leader says, you have to leave your packs behind. From here on, the path is too steep to carry all that stuff, and you probably won't find it again. And you better send your last postcards home because this is a dangerous route and it's very likely that several of us are not going to make it back. We can understand that. We may not like the sounds of it, but we can see why it makes sense. Garland says this, discipleship requires the uncompromising sacrifice of a cruciform life. To follow Jesus, you must die to give up your life. So here's the principle that we're going to look at this morning and I want you to think about. You will never be free to live, you will never be fully free to live for Christ in this life until you have learned to die with Christ to this life. This is what we're called to do. You'll never be free, right, to live 
for Christ in this world because Jesus is going into hard places and Jesus is taking us into low circumstances. You know what it's like. This, this thing you signed on, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, was not a parade, right? It is not a parade. It's taking up your cross and, and it's in those painful places Jesus loves to show up in these dark and difficult hours and moments that Christ loves to bring his resurrection power and the glory of his grace. And if you want to go with him, that's where you have to go. You have to die. You have to learn to die. You've got to embrace dying as a way of life. It's not what the culture wants. We want to see, a, we want to see power. We want to see a great display of of. Uh, of miracles and, and popularity and all of that. And the kingdom advances in painful ways, in dark places, through the glory of grace and the power of the cross. So here's, here's what I want to talk to you about. How do you persevere in discipleship? I mean, when you hear this tough call to discipleship, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to hate your family. When you hear this strong language and Jesus saying, you can't be my disciple if you're not going to do this. When you hear that, you think, how do I persevere? And I, I think there's three things that Jesus teaches and we can learn in this text. First of all, persevering discipleship requires understanding and accepting the very real and very raw costs of following Christ. Family, alienation, and public humiliation or shame. Family alienation. You know you and I have been made in the Trinity, and what is one of our deepest longings is, as people made in the image of the triune God? We want to be in community. Amen. We were made for love. We want acceptance and approval. That's built into who we are, made in the image of God, right? Isn't that true of us? And Jesus is saying, here are these deep longings. I've got news for you. If you come with me, the people that you think should love you the most won't. And the approval and acceptance that you want from the culture ain't going to happen. It's going to be quite different than that going to happen in Jerusalem to this group if you follow me and it's going to happen to anyone who take up their cross and follow Jesus so those are the two costs listen to what he says again just let me read through verse 26 and 27 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters yes even his own life he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So if, if you love anyone, including yourself, more than me, can't be my disciple. If you won't take up the cross and take the shame of the cross, you cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is saying here, and this is what I want you to hear. We've got to understand, what does he mean hate your family and hate your life? That's strong language. Here's the first thing. You will, never be true, uh, you will never be free to truly love your family until you've learned to hate your family. That is to choose the love and approval of Christ over theirs. Understand that? You'll never be free to love your family until you choose the love of Christ 
and the approval of Christ. That'll free you to love unconditionally. That'll free for you to lay down and sacrifice. But until that is the higher love, if this is the higher love, you'll never be able to be a disciple of Christ. Be faithful to him and call on him and, and proclaim his name. Secondly, you will never be able to love and serve the world until you're willing to accept and risk the hostility and humiliation of the world because Christ came to save sinners. And so if you're not willing to go into the world and be humiliated, then you, you're not gonna be able to love sinners. Because the reaction to you as you have Christ in you is going to be the reaction that Christ got, which is to ridicule you and to reject you and humiliate you. And this is one of the things I had to learn as a, as a young person. As a young person, as I began to stand up for my faith in high school, I realized I wasn't gonna be the most popular kid. And I'd face ridicule, and, and, and if, if I'm not willing to take up my cross and follow him, then I won't have a ministry where Jesus has called me to go and where he's called me to be. So let's just think about this for a second. Number one, family. The loss or alienation of those that you love most in life. The loss and alienation of those who you love most in life. In this text of scripture, Jesus says that if you don't hate, a man doesn't hate his own father, mother, wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now N.T. Wright explains that this way, he says Jesus is not denying the importance of close family and the propriety of living in support of harmony with them. But when there's an urgent task to be done, as there is now, then everything else, including one's own life, must be put at risk for the sake of the kingdom. The kingdom comes first. And there'll be pressure on you not to live for the kingdom and not to live that way and to follow Christ. There's going to be opposition to you in this. Um, David Garland says to hate all these people that are your loved ones, your family, he says the hate does not refer to enmity, but is actually a Semitic expression that conveys indifference to one in preference for the other. I love A and hate B means I prefer A to B. The parallel text in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, 37 to 38, argues for the interpretation that to hate means to love less. This is what Matthew writes. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not, what? Worthy of me. The command to honor father and mother is still valid in Luke 18, 20, John 19, 26 to 27, but Jesus will warn that those who attempt to serve two masters will end up hating one and loving the other. Family is not to become one's master. Only Jesus can have that role. Love for him is to take precedent over all other roles. Fred Craddock again says, what is demanded of disciples is that in the network of loyalties in which we all live, the claim of Christ and the gospel not only takes precedent, but redefines all your other relationships. It redefines our relationships. This can and will necessarily involve some detaching, some turning away. Now, let me just remind you what Jesus is doing and what he's teaching is he's building a new family. 
He's calling us into a new kingdom and a new community and a new family. And as you embrace that family and live for it, it'll actually free you up to minister to those that you love if he calls you to love there. But as long as you love others in place of Jesus, you will not love the way he's called you. You will not sacrifice. You cannot be his disciple. Public humiliation, the rejection and alienation of those who are seeking to serve. Luke 14, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, Garland says it is impossible to overemphasize the shame associated with the crucifixion in the ancient world. I want you to remember right now that Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. They don't get it. But Jesus is talking about the cross. And he's telling them that if they want to be his disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow them. They would wince at that. Just like we wince, you should hate your family. If you don't hate your family, you can't follow me. They would say, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. And the idea of crucifixion was public humiliation and shame. Not only physical brutality, but absolute embarrassment and humiliation. Jesus said, if you're not willing to be humiliated for my sake and for my name, you cannot be my disciple. It's a call, not simply in this passage, to die once and hate once. He's saying this is a way of life. It's actually the way the mission works. That in order to go out there, you're going to be rejected by those who you would think would love you and approve most. And those you're actually seeking to reach are not going to embrace you with warm arms and say, thanks for showing up with the gospel. They'll take Jesus and they will nail him to the tree. You see, this is the pattern of the gospel. This is the way of the master. This is what I call the title, the way of the cross. Dying brings life. Sacrifice. Self-sacrifice brings others to realize the grace of the gospel and the goodness of God. That's why Paul, in that great passage we all love in Romans chapter 8, speaks about suffering as the normal and ongoing reality of life. He said, I do not think, Romans 8, that these present sufferings are worth comparing with the glory that is yet to be revealed. Suffering is normal. He says sometimes suffering will be so egregious, so difficult for us that we won't even know how to pray. That the Holy Spirit will have to intercede with us with groanings too deep for words. It's hard. The path is hard. I don't know how to handle it. I didn't expect this. This is not calling for personal superpowers. This is calling for us to look for a power beyond ourselves. Right? In Romans 8, later on, Paul will say, what will, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? It's the love of God in Christ that's our only hope. And then this is what he says, for your sake, quoting scripture, we have been killed, how often? All the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, what? We are more than conquerors through him who saved us. So here's the comfort in this passage of scripture. As we die, as we go out to suffer, we recognize this is the mechanism of the gospel. Not, God is not megachurching it, folks. He's bringing us to our knees. He's breaking us as we follow him so that the only explanation is there's got to be a power bigger than that guy or that girl to get them through this kind of rejection and that kind of suffering. We know where that power is from, right? It's the power of a crucified and resurrected 
Savior. God is making a new family out of this brokenness and sending that family out to the families of the world that they might know Christ. So last couple of days I've been in Green Bay and uh, I was, uh, so I did go to Lambeau Field and uh, just so you know, I had a shower when I got home. No, I shouldn't say it. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 I went and saw those things. But I, I was with uh, the Blahoviak family who are driving home today. And we were there to bury Jim, uh, Ryan's dad. It was such a gift for me to watch the Blahoviak family serve their extended family. I mean, they were the ones, Ryan is an only child. So he, he, he has an aunt who's close to the same age, Cher. She was there helping out. But Ryan and Hillary were working like crazy to love on their families. Hillary had gone and uh, taken all the photos from Ryan's dad and mom's place and had gathered them for like 50 years and looked at all the relatives, divided them up, put in them envelopes so that everybody that was there Friday night at the family dinner got pictures of their times together with Ryan's mom and dad. They were just serving and inviting. And then we had the service yesterday morning, and it was like a huge honor for me to be there and to watch Ryan get up and confess sin and to tell of his hope in the gospel, to describe what it was like for us to share the gospel with Jim at the end of his life. And then um, Savannah, their youngest daughter, gets up and speaks after uh, Ryan and Cher. She's the last one. And I'll tell you, friends, she preached the gospel. This ninth grader from Waterbrook Church stood up and in front of all of her relatives and she told of the one in John 14 who came into the world uh, that we might, who, who is the way, the truth, and the life that if we believe in him we should not perish but have everlasting life. That little girl got up and preached the gospel. I did not have to say anything even though I followed her. And I was thinking, this is my family. Here we are broken and bleeding. Here they're the ones who are weeping but they're on mission. They're there for a reason. They said, you co- they, I had clear directions. You come and preach the gospel. Clear directions. I had one goal. They flew me there and back Friday and Saturday for one reason because they said they, we want our family to hear about Jesus, his comfort and his hope. While I was there, I got a text from my daughter, Kathy, in Toronto, and she sent me a picture. So at the same time I'm doing this, She's with a friend sitting in a cemetery in Toronto. And I can see the two um, headstones beside her. And the headstones, I can read, are the mother and grandmother of her best friend. Her best friend is a missionary in Asia. First year that she's not been in Toronto on the anniversary of her mother and grandmother's death, they were murdered in Toronto. So here's my daughter sitting there FaceTiming with her friend in Asia grieving with her and letting her do what she would normally do while she's far away. See friends, that's what we're called to. To enter into the sorrow. 
to enter into the brokenness. It's not heroic. Nobody is seeing what's going on. Nobody really knows what's going on in Green Bay or in Toronto or in the corner of your life, but this is it. Jesus has called us to go down and to die and to suffer and to share in it, and we can do it because he's already done it for us. In order to bring us to himself, in order to make us the family of God, that's the call. That's the call. My dear friends, it's not glorious. It's not a parade. It's taking up your cross and following him. Here, secondly, persevering discipleship requires clear-minded calculation. Those are the costs. Now here's the thing. You're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to weigh it out. What are you going to trust? What are you going to treasure? Look at this verse of scripture in verse 28. Jesus says, for which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost and whether he is enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet who, uh, the one who comes with 20,000. And if not, while the others are great, uh, way off, he sends a delegation and asks for peace. So therefore, any of one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And Jesus said, you've got to sit here and you've got to do the math. If you want to be my disciple, this ain't a parade. You're going to have to sit down and ask yourself, are you willing to go this path? Are you willing to go this way? But I think what Jesus is doing here is he's not simply saying, okay, you've got to sit and count the cost for you. He's saying everybody counts a cost. The question is, where are you going to put your hope? Where are you going to buy in? Where are you going to commit yourself? Again, I want you to hear from one of the commentators. He says, these two pictures, the tower and the battle, carry a cryptic warning in Jesus' day. The most important building project of this time was, of course, the temple in Jerusalem. Herod the Great had begun a massive program of rebuilding and beautifying it, and his sons and heirs were carrying on the work. But what was it all for? Would it ever be completed? Jesus has already warned that God has abandoned the house, his house. Herod's temple would shortly be a left a smoldering ruin. It's folly playing for all to see. This is not unconnected to the second warning. If Jesus' contemporaries had fighting in mind, the chief enemy they were thinking of going to war with was Rome. They probably had a vague idea of who exactly the Romans were and the sort of forces they had at their command. Otherwise, long before they came to blows, they would have taken the wise counsel and found a way to peace. But Jesus' warnings and his urging towards peace were falling on deaf ears. His listeners, too concerned to hang on to their ancestral possessions, were eager for a war that would set them and their land free at last. Jesus was confronting them with a true emergency, and Jerusalem was not able to hear it. And so Jesus is saying to these, if you think I'm going to come in and crush the Romans, if you think there's going to be some political solution here over the Romans. If you think building the temple and I'm going to be the Messiah and this religious movement's going to happen, I got news for you. You better do the calculations because if you're not buying into me because you're buying into something like that, if you're not going to take the low way because you're going into some superpower, 70 AD, it's going to all be over. 
That kingdom, that way, will not stand. And Jesus says, the only thing that's going to stand is my kingdom. The only thing that's going to last is what comes out of my death because I will triumph over sin and death and I will be raised from the dead and I will establish an everlasting kingdom and I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Friends, it will cost you to follow Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this, it will cost you far far more to follow the world. It'll cost you a great deal to follow Jesus Christ, but to trust religion and to trust politics, and this is one of the great dangers. We have this idea somehow that enough Christians with enough influence could change the political atmosphere of the world. Or uh, enough movement of religious people in a certain area, and suddenly there'll be awakening. Jesus says, you need to understand how this works. Cross, crucifixion, death, resurrection comes out of that. That's the way it goes, friends. Not power, not ego, not self, a savior who is Christ the Lord. The only way that we can possibly move forward, you think, how do I do this? How do we do this? How do we go forward and build a kingdom against all the odds in weakness and in brokenness? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens through Christ. The miraculous power of the resurrection. How do I die to myself when I'm wanting approval? How do, I, how do I press on when my family is opposing me and it's so hard? Only Christ in you. This is not Christ telling you to look at him. The way you take up your cross and follow is to realize he's already taken up your cross and followed the will of God and died in your place. He's won the victory. Your sins are paid for. It is finished. That's how I ended the sermon yesterday. It is finished. Christ has done it all. Listen to Andrew Murray again, the book on humility I like so much. He says, what a hopeless task if we had to do the work. Nature never can overcome nature. Self can never overcome or cast out self. Praise God. The work has been done and finished and perfected forever. The death of Jesus once and forever Sorry, the death of Jesus once and forever is our death to self. The ascension of Jesus, his entering once and forever into the holiest, has given the Holy Spirit to communicate to us in power and make our very own the power of the death life. Do you see that phrase there, the power of the death life? Listen to that phrase. Because that's how it works. You die, he raises you. You suffer, he brings life out of it. How does the kingdom of God work? You die. You're rejected. You're humiliated. You're turned away. You're abandoned. What do you do? You die again. How does it work? He raises you from the dead. He brings life through you. And as you die and raise again, God shows the resurrection power of a risen and reigning Savior. Christ seated at the right hand has been given the Holy Spirit. That spirit is meant to take you through brokenness and raise you again. Aren't you glad that you don't have to dig down deep and do it again tomorrow? To face the challenges. God puts us in hard places, in difficult circumstances, so that our boasting is not in ourselves, but in Christ. We boast in anything. It's our weakness. I can't do this another day. I can't do this again. We don't look at people and say, I'm a superpowered disciple. We tell them Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Only in his power does this work, but it works. It's how he works, not it works, 
This is how he works. So finally, this is what we need to see, and this is where Jesus is going. The third thing he's teaching is persevering discipleship is learning the spiritual discipline of renouncing all that you ha- might have, uh, uh, renouncing all that you might have more of Jesus. Let me repeat that. Persevering discipleship is learning the spiritual discipline of renouncing all that you might have more of Jesus. And so this renouncing, Jesus says, unless you renounce all, you cannot be my disciple, is not something you do once when you become a Christian and you're baptized. This is what you do every day. This is what you do the rest of your life. You renounce all. Over and over again, and there'll be a constant drawing to strength and power and influence and popularity, and you gotta run back to Jesus and say, I wanna go that way, that sounds easier, that sounds funner, that sounds like a walk in the park, and Jesus says, no, it's another day with me until that one day when I raise you rested and rejoicing forever. Listen to what he says. Any one of you that does not renounce all that he cannot all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt loses its taste, how shall it saltiness be restored? It's of no use, whether for soil or the manure pile. It is to be thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying here is how does a Christian lose his saltiness? You just start acting like everybody around you. Start being ego, egotistical. Start to be a superpower. Try to be a heroic spiritual person. Start doing that. You know how you keep your saltiness? Every day you renounce any reliance on yourself, any credit within yourself. Every day you go, I need Jesus or I perish. That's what we're called to do. Brett McCracken says, the fact is our own wicked heart is the first frontier of any mission. The battle to be on mission for God starts right here with Kevin Dibley. If I will not die today, if I will not trust Christ today, I won't be a disciple of his today. I won't be following him. I won't be serving him. And I gotta throw myself on the mercy and the power and the resurrected of Christ. I, I became a U.S. citizen um, a couple of months ago. And when I became a U.S. citizen, I had to say this statement solemnly, freely, and without mental reservation, which I did, you know, I was thinking, what's that mean? <laughs> uh, sol- solemnly, freely, and without mental reservation, I hereby renounce under oath all allegiance to any foreign state. No loyalty. My fidelity and allegiance from this day forward is to the United States of America. Now, I just need to tell you this. It's Canadian Thanksgiving this week, and I am going to have turkey. But I don't think I'm breaking the rule, (laughs) right? (laughs) But when you renounce all loyalty, this is the way of the Christian life. Every day I've got to renounce reliance on self. Every day I've got to renounce my powers and the powers of this world and the popularity and the affections of everyone else. I have one king, one master, one Lord. I owe my allegiance to him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here... In this text of scripture, Jesus is saying to you and I, every day, we need to remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Every day, we need to remind ourselves that he gave up all 
in order that someone like I might belong to him, that I might be given the right to be called the children of God, that my citizenship has been changed, and I am his and his forevermore. Aren't you glad for that? And so, friends, that's why we take communion. Because when you take the bread and you drink the cup today, you're looking at this and you're saying, this is salvation. This is life. This is the way of the cross that I must walk in. And I eat of it and I drink of it because he's done it all for me. And I say, Jesus, by eating and drinking of this, you are everything to me. You alone are my hope. You are my salvation. You are my Lord. That's how the church will be built. That's how its kingdom will become. Nobody will be impressed except those who realize their great need of Jesus. And there will be no greater story and there'll be no greater glory than what belongs to the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. 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 So let's pray and prepare our hearts to take communion. Let me just say to you, if, if you're not a Christian today and you haven't put your trust in Jesus with all the love of God, with all the love of the Spirit, with all the love of Jesus, I want to invite you to receive Jesus today. I want to invite you to ask Christ into your life to realize that he's died for you. I wish I could have Savannah here to preach the gospel to you right now and tell you how good it is to have a Savior who has gone and opened up a new way into a heavenly home who is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you've never received him today, would you receive him? And if you haven't received him yet, don't take communion, but let it be a testimony to you that there's nobody here boasting in our righteousness, nobody bragging in our accomplishments. All we're doing is saying, if he didn't do it, we couldn't, if he didn't do it, we'd be done. But because he finished the work on the cross, we're forgiven. We are children of God. The world can reject us, but we are sons and daughters of the King forever, and he will never leave us nor forsake us. So let's pray and prepare to take the cup. If you need a, a, a cup, uh, communion cup, just put up your hand and chat will bring it to you so heavenly father i just pray now that you would show us again how beautiful the cross is the way of jesus is not the way of the world not by power and not by might but by his spirit says the lord and so we thank you heavenly father that jesus died for us thank you that he took the low place that he was humbled and help us to follow after him believing dear god that through that christ through that gospel through that hope he will win the nations. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.